Good morning. I am doing Bible studies right now with a close friend that I've had from childhood. She and I were best friends in junior high and high school, and I've kept up ever since, even though she lives in Florida. And when we were talking a while back, she said, is COVID one of the seven last plagues? And I answered, no, but would you like to study the plagues so you know what they are and who they fall on? And her answer was yes, so that's how we got started. We began with the ten plagues that fell on Egypt and then the seven last plagues in Revelation. The ten plagues that fell on Egypt are listed in Exodus chapter 7 to 12, and the ten plagues were followed by the Exodus of the Israelites from Egypt, the Red Sea crossing, and later their entry into the Promised Land. And the seven last plagues are followed by the second coming and our exodus from this earth. So you're gonna, there are a lot of parallels. The Bible has lots of parallels with the stories in us today. So Exodus 7, 1 to 6 tells us, And Jehovah said to Moses, See, I have made you a god to Pharaoh, and Aaron your brother will be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and Aaron your brother shall speak to Pharaoh, and he, Pharaoh, will send the sons of Israel out of his land, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart and multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. But Pharaoh will not listen to you, and I will lay my hand upon Egypt and bring my armies, my people, the sons of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great judgments. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch forth my hand upon Egypt and bring out the children of Israel from among them. And Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded them. So did they. Well, we're all familiar with the plagues. We see the first plague in verse 17. The rivers were turned to blood. The fish died. The rivers stunk. The Egyptians did not want to drink that nasty water. It was not only in the river. It was in the ponds and the pools, the cisterns, the wells. The Bible says the Egyptians dug around the rivers for water to drink. But it doesn't say that the Israelites did that. And this was done because the Nile River in Egypt, it was their source of food and their wealth. So they worshipped the river as a god, and God was trying to teach them. But after seven days, we get plague number two, frogs. You know, frogs are kind of cute in pictures. They, they look kind of cute, just, you know. And, and I've enjoyed listening to our bullfrog that we have, we've had sometimes down at our pond on a summer's night. I find that kind of reassuring. But I emphasize that the frog is at the pond And I am in my bedroom, in my house. (laughs) Now, frogs that are in your house, in your bedroom, in your bed, or in your kitchen, in your pots and pans, and your food are not nice. That would be horrible. Pharaoh must have thought they were horrible, too, because he promised to let the people go. But he later reneged on that promise. And that plague was done because the Egyptians regarded the frogs as sacred, and they would not destroy frogs. 
In Exodus 8.2, when God told Moses to tell Pharaoh that he would smite them with frogs, he said frogs would be in all their borders. Now, borders can mean boundaries, and it can also mean coasts. So Goshen, where the Israelites were, was the part of Egypt that was given to Jacob's sons by Pharaoh back when Joseph was vizier. It was mostly grazing, or as the Egyptians probably would have called it, marginal land, as Joseph's brothers and the families were shepherds. And the Egyptians were mostly farmers. They loathed shepherds. So Goshen was to the south and the east of up there on the Nile Delta, the coastland where they had good farmland. I don't think that Goshen would have been considered a border or coastal area. Okay, lice was plague number three. It says, And the Lord told Moses to tell Aaron to stretch out his rod and smite the dust of the land, and it would become lice. So the dust became lice throughout all the land of Egypt. Can you imagine if every bit of dust in your house turned into lice? That's really creepy. It's a horrible thought. Now, here's a picture of lice in hair. It's a horrible lice infection on a scalp. These are yucky, but this is what was going on. The fourth plague were swarms of flies. They were on Pharaoh, they were on his servants, the people, and in their houses throughout all the land. And the flies were not just little bitty flies. They were the large venomous variety, and their bites were painful. Most of us, how many of you have been bitten by a horse fly? It's just no fun. They are nasty, and it really hurts. But from the fourth plague forward, there's something new. God makes a division, a distinction between the Egyptians and his people. So there were no swarms of flies in the land of Goshen. I think that's exciting. I cannot find anything about the Israelites and the first three plagues. I don't know. I'm just assuming. But if they went through the first plagues like the Egyptians, that would be one more definite reason they would want to leave the country for the promised land. But the question is, why? Why did the Lord make the distinction? so that the Egyptians would know that the great I am is the Lord. That's what he says. Now, the fifth plague was a moraine on the Egyptians' livestock. And a moraine is an infectious disease or an epidemic that affects animals. That livestock included cattle, horses, donkeys, camels, oxen, and sheep. That was the wealth. If you lived back then, almost every nation to that point, your wealth was in your livestock and in your lands. They were not only your wealth. You think about this. Back then, they provided the farming labor to pull the wagons and the plows. They provided the manure for fertilizer. They provided meat, milk, 
and cheese to eat. The hides were used for shoes and coats. The sheep and the camel provided wool for clothing. And the horses were your vehicle of transportation. And if you were going across the desert, the only way you were going to get there is if you had camels. So these, all these animals would have been your tillers, your tractors, all their implements, your pickup trucks, and your 18-wheelers. Without them, you were toast. Now, to lose a large animal like that is heartbreaking. You can ask Bobby and Peggy or JP and Bonnie or anybody who raises livestock. But to lose an entire herd or all your herds would be devastating. It would be life-changing and not for the good. Now, all the Egyptians' livestock died, but not one of the Israelis' livestock died. Now, for the sixth plague... Moses and Aaron were to sprinkle handfuls of ashes toward heaven, or in the sky, in the sight of Pharaoh. It would become dust, which then became boils with infections and blisters that broke out on man and beast in Egypt. Now, boils are swollen, infected spots on the skin that are quite painful. They usually have a cyst or pus inside, and to have one is bad. But to have your entire body covered would be unbelievable and terribly painful. And animals got these boils too. The next plague is number seven, and it was a very grievous hail. It said there was none ever like it that would destroy everything outside. And a one-day warning was given. Anyone who feared God's word brought their livestock, it says, into their homes. Are you ready to bring your horses into the living room or the sheep or the cows in the bedroom with you? I mean, we don't think about that. We have sheds. We have barns for our animals. They may be simple. They may be very beautiful. There's even a brick one that's out near us, big, huge brick horse barn. But they had to bring them into their homes because when it happened, there was hail. There was hail, lots of hail. There was also thunder and fire that ran on the ground. Every man, beast, plant, and tree was destroyed, except in the land of Goshen, where there was no hail. Now, we've all experienced hail. We've seen the small stuff. Some of you have seen golf ball size, baseball size. Any of you seen grapefruit size, really big stuff? I don't think I ever have. That's good. Well, it's heartbreaking when you see your beautiful plants or your entire fields either shredded or knocked completely down. And this hail killed everything. But that wasn't the end of it. The eighth plague was locusts. Now, there never was a locust plague like this before or since. They darkened the land and covered it all, except for Goshen. And they ate everything that remained of the plants, the fruits, the trees, and the herbs. Now, only a few species, I had to learn about this because I didn't know this. Um, Only a few species of the hundreds of grasshoppers are considered locusts. And most of the time they act just like typical grasshoppers. But when environmental conditions are right, which usually happens after a lot of rainfall and moisture, 
something dramatic happens. They increase in numbers greatly, and they undergo a remarkable transformation. They change their physiology. That's the way that they would normally function. Their brain changes, their coloration changes, and their body size changes, gets bigger. Instead of repelling one another, they get attracted to one another. And if those conditions persist in the environment, they start to march together in coordinated formations across the landscape, ravenously eating everything. Not only that, they also swarm. One swarm can consist of tens of billions of these flying bugs, and the swarm can be huge. One swarm in Kenya, Africa, was 37 miles long and 25 miles wide. That's black covering them. That particular swarm, well, it said it could move over 60 miles in a 24-hour period. And in 1988, swarms from North Africa flew and crossed the Atlantic Ocean and successfully went to the Caribbean and South America, where they ate most everything. And they especially love cereal grains. So anybody who has wheat or oats or rye, barley, any of those things planted, it'll get eaten. Well, there was then, for the ninth plague, three days of thick darkness. Darkness over the land could be caused by a few things. We don't know what God used. He could have used clouds of volcanic ash. He could have used a sandstorm. Both of those create darkness. But whatever he used, there was no sunshine, no moonlight, no starlight, nothing. It was dark for three days. And maybe they were not even able to burn candles or light torches or lanterns. And the reason I say this is that the Bible says that in the dwellings of the children of Israel, there was light. I'm thinking candles, lanterns, or torches. It could have just been God's light in his presence. We don't know, but he provided light for them. But the tenth plague was the worst of all. Now, raise your hand if you're a firstborn. We got got quite a few. I'm glad you weren't there then, because you're here now. (laughs) In every home in Egypt, the firstborn died. It could have been the firstborn child. It could have been the father or the mother. All three could have been firstborn. Every home was touched by death, from the servants all the way up to Pharaoh. But God made a dividing line again. He told the Israelites to slay a lamb. Take its blood and with a hyssop branch, put the blood on the two doorposts and also the upper post of the home. And when he came, he would pass over every home where he saw the blood. He commanded, they obeyed. He passed over and not one Israelite firstborn died. And you know, there were some Egyptians who by this point in time said, hey, we'd rather be over there than we'd be over here, so we're going to do this too. That's where you got the mixed multitude. Some of those people did this too. 
and their firstborn lived also. And Egypt lay in ruins. The country was totally wasted, but Pharaoh's heart was still hard. But the Lord used Moses and led the Israelites out of Egypt and on their way to the promised land. That was the exodus. They were on their way to the promised land after the plagues. So now let's look at the seven last plagues in Revelation. There are seven angels, and they each have a vial or a bowl of God's wrath to pour on the earth. Now lots of Christians, many of them, are scared of the seven last plagues. But I want to show you why being a believer in Jesus Christ, if you are obedient, you don't need to be fearful. Okay, the first plague is a foul, smelly, loathsome, or repulsive sore on men, sores I should say, on men, mankind, humans. Now, which men? It says, those who had the mark of the beast and who worshipped his image. God's people who keep Sabbath and worship him don't have to worry. The second plague is the sea turning to blood and all the creatures in the sea dying. That's not a very pretty picture. We like to think of blue water, not red water. The third is quite similar in that all the rivers and springs also turn to blood. Now, the second and third plagues are poured out on those who shed the blood of God's saints, his people, and his prophets. So unless you've murdered God's people, you should have nothing to worry about. In the fourth plague, that bowl, the men are scorched with heat. Now, fires are destructive, they're painful, they're deadly, like you... you, you mentioned a while ago, they destroyed the whole home. Everything's gone. It took everything. The Bible states that those who were scorched blasphemed the name of God and did not repent and give him glory. Now, I got a question for you. Do God's people repent? Yes, yes, definitely, absolutely. We ask for forgiveness. After we've done something wrong, we don't want to sin anymore. We don't want to do anything bad. We just want to give God glory, and we want to praise him and lift his name up so others want to believe too. So it's not God's people who are being scorched and burned. Okay, the fifth angel pours out his plague on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom became full of darkness. They gnawed their tongues because of the pain. Again, it says those people blasphemed God and did not repent. Well, if you're not living on the beast's throne, you shouldn't have any worries. The sixth plague is a bit more detailed and a little longer than the previous ones and needs to be unpacked. So here the angel pours out his bowl on the great river Euphrates and its waters dry up. Now, remember, this is written in symbolic language. Okay, Babylon was a large and important city, and at one time, we know it ruled the world. Babylon had been impregnable to armies due to its huge great wall and the fact that the Euphrates River, and you can see it there up by the Hanging Gardens and see it there, 
It flowed through the city so that the people had plenty of water to drink and vast supplies of food inside, thus making them invincible against a siege or a long attack. Now, when the Medes and Persians attacked Babylon, Cyrus had his soldiers dig canals and divert the water from the Euphrates into these canals. So when Belshazzar had his drunken feast, some of the Medes and Persian soldiers simply walked down onto the empty riverbanks, walked into the city, and opened the gates from the inside and let the Medo-Persian army right in. And that's how Babylon was overthrown. Okay, the word Babylon originally meant confusion. Back in the story of Babel, when they tried to build a tower to heaven to protect themselves from dying in another flood. Well, God confused the language of the people, and so they dispersed in different directions since they could no longer communicate, and the tower building was forgotten. But Babylon grew anyway. It became a large and important city, and it was a city of great luxury, of sensuality, vice, and corruption. The old city of Babylon is gone and uninhabited now. But in spiritual terms, spiritual Babylon continues. It still exists as the Roman church. And there are similarities. Its doctrines are confusing. They are not biblically based. The Roman church, like Babylon, is full of luxury, sensuality, vice, corruption, power, and greed. Wikipedia says, Outside of the sinful reputation given it by the Bible, this city is known for its impressive walls and buildings, its reputation as a great seat of learning and culture, and the formation of a code of law. The ancient city of Babylon plays a major role in the Bible, representing the rejection of the one true God. I hope you see how the Roman church follows right along with that. It's sinful reputation, like in the recent lawsuits of priests uh, molesting children. It has very impressive buildings. Their cathedrals all over the world are very impressive. They're beautiful. It also has great learning centers. You think of, there are a lot of them, Notre Dame, Villanova, DePaul, University of Dallas, Loyola, Marquette, Fordham, Santa Clara, Boston College, Georgetown, Georgetown, and St. Mary's in San Antonio. And the Roman Church also has its own law, their version of the Ten Commandments, which differs from God's. Now, in Revelation 17, verse 15 tells us, the waters... Now think the Euphrates, which you saw where the harlot sits, are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. So the waters that flow in and made the city what it became are the peoples who make up the Roman church. And verse 1 of chapter 17 tells us that the great harlot sits on many waters. The Roman church is located in more countries of the world than any other church. But now at this time, the water dries up, just like the Euphrates dried up. So it means the support of all these people is withdrawn. And I don't know why, but hopefully it's because they learned the truth. 
The Bible says that the river dries up so that the way of the kings from the east might be prepared. And you say, who are the kings from the east? King means just that, a sovereign or a king. And if you look in the Bible, you're not going to find the word east very often. But in Matthew 2, 2, you hear the words of the wise men saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and are coming to worship him. And Matthew 24, 27, For as lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. He's coming from the east. He came from the east the first time, and he will come from the east at his second coming too. And next it says three unclean spirits or demons like frogs appear. And how do frogs catch their prey? With their tongues. Yeah, their mouth, their word. Well, I'm thinking words. But these unclean spirits come out of the mouth of the dragon, which is Satan, the beast, which is the Roman church, and the false prophet, which is apostate Protestantism. They are the spirits of demons who perform signs. They go out together, all the kings and the people, to the battle of the great day of God Almighty in the place called Armageddon. And it amazes me that they don't realize that they are fighting God, the creator of everything. But Jesus now makes a statement. Behold, I'm coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. Now, if we stay close to Jesus, pray, read our Bibles, watch the times we live in to see what is happening, to ask him to cover us with his righteousness, and to give the messages that we are to give, we will not be spiritually naked. And if we're clothed with Christ's righteousness, we don't have anything to worry about. Now, after the seventh plague was poured out by the seventh angel, there was a loud voice from the temple, from the throne, saying, It is done. That means the work in the sanctuary is over, finished, completed. And several things happened. There were noises, thunder, and lightning, the mightiest earthquake ever, The city was divided into three parts. The cities of the nation fell. Every island and mountain was gone. Babylon received God's wrath. And the hail, the weight of a talent, which is 75 pounds, fell on men. I cannot imagine hail of 75 pounds. Anyway, but after both the fourth and fifth plagues, the statement is made that they did not repent of their deeds. But we know God's people repent. After the seventh plague, it says that men blasphemed God. Now, God's people don't blaspheme. They don't curse or swear at him. And everyone needs to understand that these seven last plagues are not poured out on God's people. They're poured out on the wicked. But fortunately, contrast those awful situations with God's patient saints who obey God's commandments And have the faith of Jesus. That's where we want to be. In plagues 2 and 3, the water turned to blood because those that it's poured on shed the blood of the saints and the prophets or condemned them to death. 
Either way, God gave them blood to drink because they were worthy of it. And in the fourth plague was scorching men with heat and fire, and they burned God's people at the stake, so they're getting the same treatment. Many of the world's people have been kept in spiritual darkness by these evil people, so they're given darkness and pain on the fifth plague. Now, I don't totally know the reason that the waters or peoples flowing into the Roman church dried up, but Revelation 14 tells us about the three angels' messages that are to be given by God's people, that's us, to the world. The first angel's message is the good news of the gospel that goes to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people on this planet. Uh, That's the message that we are to fear God and worship him as creator. There's a judgment hour, and people need to know that they will be held responsible for their deeds if they don't turn to God and repent. And the second angel's message says that Babylon has fallen because of her immorality. And then the third message tells everyone that if you worship that system and you receive their mark, and the system says right up front that their mark is Sunday-keeping, so whether it's in your hand or your forehead, in other words, consciously or unconsciously, you will drink of God's wrath and be tormented in his presence. And I'm assuming that once the world really understands these three messages, hopefully the Roman church will lose its support. I don't know. I don't know why, but but it will. But the next main thing is we must give these three messages. Remember back in Exodus I read earlier, and Jehovah said to Moses and Aaron, you shall speak all that I command you. They had to speak, and we have to speak too. We've got to do our job. We need to speak and share these messages. And I don't think we're all going to be up in front in a pulpit or speaking to hundreds or thousands of people. There are a few people that will be. I think most of us will just be sharing with our friends, our neighbors, people that we know, and, and to give this message. And, but our verse today was back in Psalms 91.4. He shall cover you with his feathers, and under his wings you shall take refuge. His truth shall be your shield and buckler. And we know a mama hen covers her chicks with her feathers and protects them. And we know there's a soldier with his shield. It's used for protection. There's a group of Roman soldiers with their shields, and that brought great fear to most people. Now, a shield or shields can be used to defend the front line and also from arrows up on top. And they're for protection for the group. Now, right here, this group lineup uses shields for protection and spears for their swords as their defense. That was a powerful defense and an offense. But I didn't know what the word buckler meant. That was a new one for me. A buckler is an individual's protection. It's the individual soldier soldier has that. He held it in his left hand, usually, as the right hand was used to cover, I mean, to for the sword, and it was used in hand-to-hand combat. So we need to remember, he will cover you with his feathers, and under his wings you shall take refuge or trust, and his truth shall be your shield to protect the group and buckler to protect the individual. We can trust him. 
Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to God our Savior who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen.